Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I don't just cover films of the 1980s, even though I may have an emphasis on that. I also do film reviews of what's out in theaters right now. You can also listen to my podcast covering that. You can find my links at my website, quipster.net. Today we're going to be continuing on the second part of a three-part series looking at films in which a protagonist and antagonist travel from the future to the past, and that's where they do battle. Last week I covered The Terminator from 1984. This week we're going to go a little bit outside of the 1980s for a film that came out in 1991. Of course, I'm talking about Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And the reason why I'm going outside of the 80s here in order to cover a sequel is because a lot of the ideas for Terminator 2 were conceived of for the first film, but they didn't have the budget, they didn't have the time to really get it all together. And a lot of those ideas were saved for the second time around. So there is a narrative similarity, and a lot of the seeds were born in the 1980s. So enough there for me to consider it a part of a narrative whole. Of course, we bring back a lot of the main stars from the first film. Terminator 2 Judgment Day has writer-director James Cameron, William Wisher Jr. contributing to the screenplay. Arnold Schwarzenegger is back as a Terminator. Linda Hamilton is back as well. The supporting class, really kind of a starring cast here, Edward Furlong and Robert Patrick, and a smaller role going to Joe Morton. Like the first one, it's an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, gore, and language. The runtime is, well, it depends on which cut you watch. I have it listed here as 2 hours and 17 minutes, and some of the cuts that feature extra scenes are a decent amount longer than that, but I'll get into some of those cuts a little bit later. You know, thinking about the first film, Arnold famously said in one of the few bits of dialogue that he had in 1984's The Terminator, I'll be back. Seven years later, his words, of course, would prove true. The sequel to the hit low-budget flick, which gained enormous popularity in the home video and cable market, returned, and at this time, with over 15 times the budget, and it became the most expensive film ever made up to that point. Although it has been superseded by many of today's big-budget studio releases in terms of special effects, for its day, these were the most stunning visuals around. It had revolutionary techniques that blended with the live action in a near-flawless fashion for the era. Now, it wasn't supposed to take seven years to put out a follow-up to The Terminator. Hemdale Film Corporation, which released the first film to the biggest success that they'd had, They pushed forward putting together a sequel just the following year in 1985 with James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and producer Gail Ann Hurd all expressing interest in making it happen. Cameron, though, was more interested in providing just the story and screenplay than he was in getting behind the camera yet again as director, and that effectively put the project into kind of a limbo there. When the rights to the franchise, which Cameron had sold off for the insane price of $1 in order to be the director of 1984's The Terminator, those rights had been bought out by Carol Co. a few years later for a much higher, but still relatively low, $5 million. They set about again putting forward a sequel with the now superstar status Arnold Schwarzenegger, agreeing only on the condition that he would return if James Cameron returned to direct. A deal was then hammered out back in 1990 to give James Cameron 
much more leeway into making additional passion projects if he took on Terminator 2 and production on T2, which is the marketing name for Terminator 2, that would soon begin on the follow-up immediately. Now, to bring back the talent, the budget would already start before even one frame was shot at a sky-high level. Arnold Schwarzenegger was brought in for a reported $15 million that, if you take a look over the course of the script, adds up to about a little over $21,000 for every word that he uttered. Cameron himself secured about 5 or $6 million to get them on board. He set about working on the script with William Wisher. Wisher wrote some of the dialogue and also co-wrote the novelization of the original film. He knew these characters as well as anyone besides Cameron himself. Now, the core of T2's ideas came from those that Cameron kicked around for the first film. Two Terminators he wanted to bring back, Cyberdyne takedown toward the end of the film, etc. But... Either he did not have the budget to achieve those things, or those ideas changed when he had cast Schwarzenegger into the original T-800 role. Schwarzenegger, it should be noted, scoffed at playing the bad guy in the first film, but then agreed to it after being cajoled by James Cameron. Here, he scoffed at playing the good guy who does not terminate humans in T-2, and he felt that way partially because he saw his Conan franchise pretty much sink when it did a similar thing in toning down the killing, going for more of a PG level to try to widen the audience. Unfortunately, it lost that initial audience. Now, after about two months of working together, the first draft of the screenplay would be complete. They went for more of an action-oriented feel to the thrills here, instead of the more horrific and atmospheric beats that were provided in the original. And once production began, the costs to bring Cameron's vision to life eventually would balloon from its initial $60 million budget to a reported $100 million, and that placed it firmly as the most costly film ever made to that date, which is coincidentally an honor that James Cameron would repeat when he made True Lies, and then when he made Titanic, and then when he made Avatar. Linda Hamilton returns here as a buffed-out version of Sarah Connor. She's the mother of humanity's future savior. She's now holed up in a mental institution for her claims that the world is going to end in an apocalyptic nuclear war instigated by a sentient advanced computer system. Now, the savior, John Connor, played in this film in young form by Edward Furlong, he's a rebellious teen living in foster care who soon learns that his mother is not a crackpot after all after being chased by a cop who is actually a T-1000 model Terminator, a shape-shifting liquid metallic artificial entity played by Robert Patrick. The T-1000 is sent from the future to kill John Connor. Interesting to note here that the film sets up the T-1000 as the potential human sent back as savior, who is later revealed to be the assassin and an advanced Terminator model, despite all of the advertising, though giving away all of these plot reveals. You know, it was meant to be a secret, but James Cameron knew that it was a secret that wasn't going to last long. So they ended up just revealing it in the advertisements, though the movie does play as if you're not supposed to know. Now, John's own savior here is a T-800 cybernetic organism played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, identical to the one you saw in the first film, the one that tried to kill Sarah, of course, years before. Only this time, his future self did reprogram one of those T-800s to send back and protect him as a boy, as well as his mother. However, the older model is barely a match for this nearly indestructible futuristic killing machine, and then a chase ensues that sees Sarah and company trying to stay alive while they're destroying the path to humanity's downfall. 
the advancements here learned through the finding of the chip and the hand remnant from the previous T-800 machine we learn about from the first film. Now, Linda Hamilton here, returning, beginning several months of physical training to get her up to the kind of physique that James Cameron envisioned that a woman gearing up for war would have. She trained in judo. She learned how to properly handle and shoot a variety of weapons, and of course, really upped her game in terms of the acting department. Although much of it had been in place prior to the filming, one of the last additions would prove to be one of the most important in its factors. That would be finding a young actor to play John Connor a then-unknown local boy with no prior acting experience named Edward Furlong. He was found by the casting director at a local boys' club because the young actors that they had been auditioning for the role really could not give a convincing enough streetwise attitude. They found it here in Furlong in the flesh. He joined the cast a month prior to shooting beginning for the film, during which he had to get up to speed with not only acting training, but he had to perform some minor stunt work as well as to learn how to ride a motorcycle, After James Cameron toyed with initially having the T-1000 resemble Kyle Reese, kind of a twist on the first film, he then explored this notion of casting rock star Billy Idol as the T-1000. Idol ended up having to bow out because he ended up having to recover from wounds from an unfortunately timed motorcycle accident that would take him out of the very physical role. Robert Patrick here, another relative unknown professional actor that caught James Cameron's eye when Cameron watched Die Hard 2. During the casting process, he's here to play the villain. Cameron using his idea for everyman looks that he meant for the Terminator in the first film to full effect here, taking it one step further by assuming the role of a police officer in order to do the kind of intel and to gain access to places without question that a Terminator would want. Patrick says his performance used predatory animals like the American bald eagle and a shark for inspiration on how to behave as a Terminator on the hunt for his prey. He also worked very hard on building his running stamina so that he could perform the T-1000's scenes of high-speed foot chases over and over without visibly showing signs of exertion. Now, there are many, and I realize a lot of people who are listening to this right now, that consider T2 the superior of the Terminator flicks. And I can understand that from an eye candy standpoint for sure, and perhaps a depth of characterization standpoint, of course. I'm not willing to concede the point here, though. I actually enjoy the first film more, and I think my preference partially stems from the fact that I was a kid who watched the first film endlessly for about the seven years prior to T2's theatrical release. It became one of my all-time favorite films during that span. It still is, by the way. So my expectations were pretty high for me to naturally scrutinize a sequel. And perhaps a more important reason is that, with the exception of budgetary restrictions on special effects, there's really nothing that I could think of that I would change about the first film, whereas there are several things that I kind of wish would be better, or at least different, in the make-a-budget sequel. Now, some are lesser preferences, Edward Furlong's casting would not have been my choice. In addition to seeming to labor to act on occasion, only seven years have passed between the movies, and here John Connor's supposed to be 10 years old. Edward Furlong is still noticeably older than that. He hit the age of 13 during the time of filming. I don't think he passes very well as a 10-year-old, personally speaking. To sidestep these inconsistencies, though, James Cameron claims that T2's timeline to be around 1994-95, depending on which interview you go with, although there really isn't anything particularly within the film that would suggest that anything is set outside of the world of 1990 when the film was shot. 
And for the largest drawback, I'm thinking more along the lines of contrivances in the story. And while those make for some cool moments within those set pieces, they seem just all too convenient to really swallow, such as the appearance of a liquid nitrogen truck. I mean, how common are these on the road? It just so happens to appear when it's needed, immediately followed by a scene at a metal foundry. I mean, how convenient is it that the two most plausible ways to stop the T-1000 would present themselves right at the climax of the film? Now, regardless of whatever weaknesses you can ascribe to this film, this is, nevertheless, I think, still one of the best science fiction action flicks ever made. Some truly breathtaking scenes of action that will leave anybody who watches it with mouths agape. James Cameron may not be the best screenwriter when it comes to dialogue, but he is a phenomenal craftsman when it comes to mounting big-time, big-budget action set pieces, especially in keeping the momentum up through shrewd editing and tight pacing. Cameron also knows his characters well enough to give them room to breathe within the construct of this thrill ride. He fills in these in-between moments with actual character development, philosophical explorations, and bits of drama that do have emotional resonance. Although this premise is similar to the first film, I think Cameron pulls off this feat without copycatting much else, especially in the way he delivers moments that mirror its predecessor by building on the themes without actually ripping them off. A Terminator versus Terminator battle here gives us a fantastic showcase for special effects-driven action, but also fills this film with surprising amount of pathos. Cameron also works very well with his group of actors, drawing out Linda Hamilton's best performance, I think, in any film she's been in, and he works well enough through some difficult moments with that first-timer actor Furlong to get him through a highly seen, high-profile movie to make it still a phenomenal time for most. The symbolic touches here are very well developed. They stay true to form without taking us out of the moment. John Connor here, he wears a public enemy t-shirt that's wholly appropriate for a young teen to wear in the early 1990s. He's being chased by a representation of a policeman in the T-1000 that's equally appropriate, giving the machine a power to walk in and out of situations, gain access and right of way without being called into question. And given that the phrase public enemy is someone that is being sought after by the police, it does make sense here. Terminator X, that's the name of the DJ in Public Enemy, it all kind of comes full circle there. Playground motifs also abound in this film. That's a place where life is just beginning for many people, but as shown here in a very horrific dream sequence, it's where life ends, with all humanity eradicated in a very fiery display where all that's left is the metal constructs that we've built, paralleling the future where humans are also on the brink of extinction to agents of metal. The character of Sarah Connor here has gone from an unassuming waitress from the first film to a warrior. And eventually, throughout the course of this film, her personality dabbles into becoming something akin to a Terminator, with pre-knowledge of the man responsible for advancing the technology that will bring about the end of the world, essentially, and coldly trying to assassinate him in order to prevent an outcome that would nearly decimate life on Earth. In essence, she's the Terminator, even though she's a human within this film. This plays out in contrast to the T-800. He's a Terminator who learns how to be more human and to value human life. That's a direct theme of the film, that human beings are the ones with the capacity to destroy ourselves if we don't eventually learn the value of our own existence. Now, above and beyond the action and the special effects, the film is also quite humorous at times, especially during scenes such as the young John Connor teaching the T-800 to start using slang to fit in better. Affirmative should be changed to no problemo. 
Schwarzenegger's penchant for one-liners is second to none for his era, and that gives him the ammunition that he needs to deliver more funny moments later. It's also surprisingly affecting for an action movie. The ending in particular provides a tearjerker moment that will leave a few eyes misty. I'm almost ashamed to admit that this is one of probably a handful of films that actually get me out and out crying. It seems ridiculous today. I don't cry anymore because I know it's coming, but it really did affect me. And for such a robust film that strives for hearty machismo, it's surprisingly adept with showing a kinder and softer side at times. James Cameron and co-screenwriter William Wisher have made sure that what could have been just a film that delivers on technical brilliance is also a human and emotional experience. It's not dissimilar to the way that the T-800 is defined, an unrelenting artificial construct with an unexpected core of human emotion to guide it eventually. Now, despite its sky-high budget, T-2 would prove to be a major success at the box office. It raked in over $200 million in the United States alone in 1991, and over $520 million if you include its worldwide take. It makes it the biggest box office earner of 1991. Reportedly, it still holds the record for the highest percentage increase in box office between a sequel as compared to the original take. It racked in about 4.34 times what the first film had done theatrically. In addition here, compensating for a ballooning budget, product tie-ins do abound. Harley-Davidson that the T-800 rides to his sunglasses to the soundtrack featuring the latest hit song by Guns N' Roses, whose music video features clips from this film, as well as a cameo appearance by Arnold Schwarzenegger himself as the T-800 in the music video for You Could Be Mine. That's punctuated within the movie when the T-800 pulls a gun out of a box of roses. T2 was blessed with great critical write-ups and satisfied to a great extent millions and millions of fans around the world. It would garner repeat viewings and smash home video release records to top off its phenomenal theatrical run. It would also be nominated for six Academy Awards for its technical achievements. It took them four Oscars for its visual effects, its makeup, its sound mixing, and sound editing. It did end up losing to Oliver Stone's JFK for cinematography and editing, though. Its Oscars that it took home made it the only sequel up to that point to get an Academy Award when its predecessors had not gotten any nominations at all, at least until The Bourne Ultimatum and Mad Max Fury Road sometime later. Now, T2 is a spectacular motion picture experience. It will probably knock the socks off of anyone who does not eschew anything with violence. I think it's one of the best sequels ever made. It builds upon the first film without feeling like a complete recreation, even though it takes essentially the same plot, but it feels so much different in so many ways. From its tone to its characterizations to pretty much everything else, it gives us more of what we want, a great deal that we don't expect, and it all builds up to a powerhouse ending that actually delivers. So for that, I mean, what else can I give it? It's a four-star review out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I recommend it to anybody who would watch an R-rated film, of course. Four stars out of four means I think it's an excellent film. Infinitely rewatchable. I notice something different every time I watch it, and I just enjoy this movie. James Cameron really knocking it out of the park when it comes to sequels. His Aliens, considered one of the best sequels of all time, and T2. I guess if you count Piranha 2, The Spawning, which he barely actually was really involved with. But my goodness, I don't think you could have expected such a home run to be hit twice within the same universe in an action series. So just an incredible movie. I love it.
Now, there are multiple cuts of the film that do exist in home video releases, special edition, director's cut, Skynet edition, ultimate edition. I mean, there's just, I don't know which is the best one. I guess I would say start off with the theatrical version and you'll probably become a fan and then end up watching all of the other versions the next time. And you'll notice a lot of story wrinkles, a lot of plot developments. I mean, scenes that explain more of the character motivations and the plot. Famously, the director's cut does contain a dream appearance featuring the return of Michael Bean as Kyle Reese. That's a nice touch. And an ending that's set in a future in which it shows the changes that are brought about by the actions taken within the film. I'm not going to spoil that for you. I'll let you watch that on your own when you do get into the alternate cuts of this film. But regardless, whichever way you slice it, I think you're in good hands watching Terminator 2 Judgment Day in any of its various cuts. It's a great film. Anyway, that's it for me for the Terminator franchise. I'm not going to get into Terminator 3 or the other two sequels that came out that didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger. I do have reviews of them on my website. I do encourage you to check those out at quipster.net. Obviously, sometime in 2019, we're going to get the follow-up that ignores those sequels. Pretty much a continuation of the first two films with the new Terminator film called The Dark Fate. And that'll be coming out this year. I will review that on my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. So check that out when it comes out. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, rounding out the three films in which a malevolent person from the future comes back to the past and has to be taken down by a benevolent agent of the future. I'm going to go back to 1984, not for The Terminator, but for a film that was released the same year. It is called Trancers, which also had many sequels outside of the 1980s. But I'm just going to cover Trancers for next week. More of a B-movie feel to that one, but really fun. It has a cult following of its own. Trancers from 1984 for next week's episode. I hope that you keep up with me as I get to these reviews. And until next time, thank you everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 